All right, so I think behind me right now, at least in a second, we're going to see one giant word, unity, all right? And this word is a colossal word, right? And, and there's a lot of reasons to it. I mean, I think when you live in a context where you experience unity, you know the sweet spot of that. For example, in your marriage, if you have that season where there's disunity, nothing is happy. Nothing functions right. You don't wake up in the morning with a song on your lips and birds chirping and everything. You lean over, you look at that person, and you go, punch them, right? Because there's not unity. But when there's unity, there's bliss, there's purpose, there's function. Everything comes together right. And so you know the sweet spot of unity. If you have a job and there's been a context where there's disunity within your team or your fellow employees, you know how miserable it is to go to work, how miserable it is to try to do your job. Anytime you're going to do something that agitates another, you kind of have that sense of pit in your stomach. You're like, oh, this isn't going to go good. Why? Because I know there's already not unity. But when you have unity in the team at work, it's way better. The same is true for church. Today, I guarantee you that throughout this country, there are pastors walking up onto platforms behind pulpits and they're looking out and they know there isn't unity. And it concerns them and it worries them. They know there's conversations in different places. They know there's plotting. They know there's discontent. They know there's a lack of focus and that's going to impede mission, right? They know it. And so they sense that dread because there isn't this beautiful thing called unity. But when churches have unity, wow, that's magic. That's powerful. That's a jewel. That's like a diamond. When a church has real unity and real focus and real ambition and real drive and they're all connected together, that's a powerful thing. And the devil, he hates unity. He loves disunity. And so all the more it makes us want to be aware of the need for striving for unity. See, unity is a funny thing because you can't uh, pay for it. You can't force it. You can't control it. But what you can do is say, we hold it in highest regard. It is our chief desire to see uh, formed among us. And we know that when we have it, it honors Jesus in a pretty radical way. In fact, Jesus even told his disciples, the world is going to know that you are mine because you love one another. When there is unity in the church, again, things happen. When there is unity in the church, the gospel goes forth. When there's unity in the church, people grow because, again, it's the sweet spot where everything happens right. So as a church, then, our heart, our focus, our desire is to go, what does it take to have unity? And see, fundamentally, there's not a formula to unity. I, I, I've learned over the course of time, you have unity when there's a common identity and when people are willing to sacrifice their own ambitions or opinions with some sanity in there, but for the sake of that greater good known as, as unity. I mean, I know that in my marriage, you know, if there's times where I'm getting selfish and it, it's about me and I'm not happy with this or that, I guarantee you disunity is soon to follow because it's more about me than about us. And the same is true in a church context. It's not so much about me, it's about us. That's what we want to seek always in churches. 
Now, one of the ways the churches try to do this is the topic we started into last week. Churches use government to try to accomplish unity. Now, uh, just that word government's a funny thing because, again, when you think about that, in our global context, government usually has one or two underpinnings behind it. We're either looking for a government that's designed to foster checks and balances for the sake of the people, or you have other governments that use control, right? So control or checks and balance. And that seems to be the two dominant governmental themes designed to bring unity to a culture, And so what happens is then churches look at government and they go, well, how do we just throw the word church onto the front of government and and do it that way? And so we go, great, church government to form unity is going to be checks and balances or controls. That sounds so fun. More often than not, this is what churches do. We look at our outlying culture. We go, how does the government of the culture work? Well, that's how we're going to do it here. And often it creates a mess. It creates problems because there's only so many flavors you can go to. And it's all predicated on the idea of either control or checks and balance. Still, it's not about forward movement. It's about trying to keep everything here locked in like you can force unity. Churches can't force unity. People can't force unity. Marriages can't force unity. Nobody can force unity. Unity is chosen for greater good. But sometimes we try to use government to do some of that, and it gets all messy. Now, in the church context of government, as we import ideas from our world into our churches to create this alleged unity, uh, we have very few flavors to go off of. It seems there's only a handful that that people seem to use to really see government function in the church. And so I want to just kind of point out three really quick. We're moving right into our stuff this morning, trying to get right to it because we have a lot to do. And so the first form of government that churches try to use to bring alleged unity is hierarchical. Hierarchical government, which is the elders or the deacons or the elders and the deacons, are over the membership. And some of you may come from one of those dynamics where you you know what that's like. And so uh, maybe it's a bishop or it's a cardinal, it's somebody in a robe or a neck thing or a funny hat or whatever, you know. And you're used to this top-down model, you know, that, that this is how it works. And, and probably all of us, or at least a lot of us, grew up in some context that was like that. And that's a form that some churches turn to and some churches seek to use, right? And so they, they go down this road and, and that's what it is. And, and there's some things about that that are good. Some things about that that can be useful. But what often happens in these particular forms of doing church is that in time it becomes very bureaucratic and in time the leaders that are higher up the chain are further away from the the churches and the members and the congregations and and there's like this giant gulf and then the bureaucracy grows and it's all about the system more than the mission and so in time these things just become these bloated behemoths and beasts and they're hard to really move forward Because they're systems and machines and that's how they operate. So you have that, right? And that that goes on in some contexts. And as a church, as we were developing redemption, we're like, well, what kind of government are we going to be? Are we going to be hierarchical? And the answer was no, we're not going to be that. We're not going to do that. So you go, great, so what's the other option? Well, on the other end of the spectrum, we have another variation of how churches govern themselves called congregational. 
And congregational is usually a reaction to the hierarchical, right? So we go, well, we don't like the top down, big guy to the bottom, little guy. We want to do the opposite. We want to put the membership in the congregation over the leadership. And that's going to make it work right. And again, like I said, this is usually reaction. We've seen abuse or neglect or bureaucracy. And we say, we don't want any of that. So we want to do it different. And so these systems kind of go on. And the challenge in the congregational system is that often things get sort of bogged down in the need for votes for everything. You're getting hundreds of people on the same page to move things forward. And oftentimes, hundreds of people, what they want is security and safety, and they want predictability. And so what happens is they kind of move very slow. Because, well, hey, you know, we're being cautious because we're trying to get many people to go in one direction. And so these are flavors the churches use when it comes to government, therefore, to try to establish unity. There's a third system. It's one of my favorites. It's anarchal, derived from anarchy, which is the elders and the deacons are the members. This is toxic. This is nuclear. All right. This is this is congregationalism on steroids. Basically, you know, this is an Occupy Wall Street movement under Jesus. That's what this is. All right. So. This is a bunch of people all get together and they say, we're all going to be the same and we're going to have the same rules and we're all going to have the same authority and we all get to say yes. And so there are a bunch of chiefs all together in a church and everybody has the exact same role, responsibility and full call on everything. Here's the great thing about these churches. They don't get very big. Matter of fact, there are probably homeschooling families that are anti-birth control that are bigger than most of these churches because, all right, Because when you have 20 chiefs, that's what you got, 20 chiefs. And and nobody can quite plug into that. And there are churches out there that do that. And they go, uh, you know, we're all the same. We're all elders. We're all the leaders. We're going to do it all. We don't have pastors and we don't have this kind of structure. It's all just us. And it's like, yeah, it is all just you. You just need an eight-man tent and you're good. You can go anywhere, right? So those are the flavors usually the churches turn to. And so as we're looking at this idea of church membership and what it means to be a member of redemption and how redemption is going to function as a church, we had to look at all of that and go, well, Jesus, what is it that you have for us? Are, are these the only things we can turn to? Hierarchical, congregational, or anarchical, which would be fun. I granted that. But, um, or is there something better? And that's sort of what we have investigated And what we've really done in that is to say, is there a way that the the Bible prescribes how church is done that we should follow and we should do? And from that, we really came to the conclusion as leaders working through this and praying through this and just agonizing over it, that there is a way, there is a biblical way to do church that doesn't borrow from the governmental systems of the world for checks and balances or controls, a different system, a biblical system where it is Jesus And then under Jesus are elders and deacons and members. In other words, it isn't this top down, bottom down. It's this idea that we come together, we partner together. Different roles, different functions, different senses of identity in that. But we're locking arms side by side with different senses of calling in that. And we move forward as a church under Jesus was a mission and a plan for his church in the world. That's the heart behind what we do. 
We go, we want to make sure the gospel is more important, the kingdom's more important, so we want to lock arms as a people. In fact, in this sense, uh, realistically, we, we don't really look at things in terms of church government. Uh, we look at things in terms of church team. We look at church as a team, not a government. We don't see our structure as a government. We see it as a team. Think about a team. You have an owner. You have coaches. You have defense. You have offense. That's a team. And in the same way in the church, we'd say we have an owner. His name's Jesus. We have coaches. They're elders. We have defense. Those are deacons. We have offense. Those are members. And they all work together for the common good. That's very different than a government. You look at government, government fights to keep others sort of intact. Teams fight to organize together to win. People love teams. People don't love governments, right? And I got to be honest, I don't want to be a part of a government. It's just not my thing. Get to know me. I don't do well in governments, all right? Because, again, the very nature of them is predicated somehow on an ultimate failure at some part because it's just trying to to control the sinful nature of man. It's not like vision-oriented. It's not goal-oriented. It's not success-oriented. It's just kind of, it's just there to kind of keep the peace. And I don't believe Jesus just establishes the church structure just to keep the peace. He establishes church structure to advance the gospel, to advance the mission. And so that's how we should see it. We go, great, I want to make sure we do that, not for checks and balances, not just simply for control. Those are the wrong ideas. Rather, we do this to defend, to convert, and to win. See, that's why we want to be a team. That's why as we move forward as a church, we go, okay, well, what, what does everybody do in this context? We go, okay, well, whatever it is, it, it's, it's rooted in that idea. That we're locking arms, working together, common goal as a team for the good of Jesus, his glory, and his gospel. And so that's what we are. We're a team. And the team, of course, as we saw last week, starts with the owner. The owner is Jesus. Jesus is the owner because he came, he lived, he bled, he died, he rose for his church. He owns it. It's his church. He has a very unique, special, intimate relationship to us because he took our junk on himself and gave us his righteousness. So he is the senior pastor of his church because he owns it. From there, as we saw last week, what Jesus does is then he calls to himself qualified elders who serve him by coaching his church. Now, if you weren't with us last week, uh, we encourage you to go online. You can watch that video. Uh, We also posted a little book that I wrote a while back on church eldership and leaders. If you want to read that, you can read that, get a sense of it. Uh, Because again, we're not going to go back over that this week, but there was a lot in there helping us understand what the coaches in the team do, right? They coach under Jesus with many, many responsibilities, according to the New Testament. That's kind of where we left off last week. And so this week, we kind of barrel right in uh, and, and we get to this other element of those who lock arms as a team. And that is that the elders coach with a very unique, qualified group of servants that are known as deacons. All right? Qualified group of servants known as deacons. Now, the word deacon in the New Testament just means servant. So what they do, they serve. But see, what's interesting is a deacon, uh, much like an elder, isn't just where we go, hey, who's the most known? Who's the most skilled? Who, who, who's been here the longest? Who's the most popular? That's not how the New Testament says, this is how you do it. The New Testament says, no, no, no. Actually, they have to be qualified. 
Elders have to be qualified. Deacons have to be qualified. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, we see the qualifications for a deacon. It says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine or greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. It says, let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons. If they prove themselves blameless, their wives or the women deacons must likewise be dignified, not slanderous, not sober mind, or, uh, but sober-minded, rather, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, manage their children and their own household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus, right? So it's not just like, hey, anybody we just need as a deacon. No, it's people who have certain qualities in their life. Their family has certain qualities. Their reputation has certain qualities. Why? Because they represent the church at large to their community. And so as we look as leadership, we go, man, the elders have to be held to a high standard. Equally, the deacons are held to a high standard. Uh, In this sense, the coaches and the defense High standard. High standard. Now, the reason we say that their defense is kind of what they do. In fact, in Acts chapter 6, you get a sense of what deacons really facilitate. And in that passage, I won't read the whole thing, but basically there's a scene where certain individuals aren't being served food. And so the apostles come and they go, man, how are we going to fix this? Well, we need to find these individuals who can serve these people so then we can be focused on the word and prayer. So in a church context, you have the elders who kind of facilitate that word and prayer and care in that way. And then they go, man, we got to make sure that we keep protecting the word and prayer. So we need deacons to help us do what we do. And by that, they go and they take and fill in whatever needs exist within the church. Maybe it's hospitality in some way. Maybe it's set up. Maybe it's benevolence. Whatever the need is, they go to where the need is. Much like a defense, goes to where the ball is going, goes where the need is, plugs the hole, stops the play, whatever. That's what a deacon does. And so as a church, we have Jesus as our senior pastor. Under Jesus as our senior pastor, we have elders. And then with the elders, we have deacons. Elders focus on the word. The elders focus on prayer. The elders focus on direction. The elders focus on protecting the church and teaching the church. And then the deacons help the elders by serving the people. See, that's the heart behind all of it. And then we have the playmakers. The playmakers are going to be the members, right? This is the locking arms again. Coaches are coaching. Deacons are serving. Members, points on the board. Members are doing the stuff, right? That's what it's all about. So elders and deacons serve with qualified members. And by qualified members, we're going to see what that looks like. But here's what you need to know. Since this is also our membership class right now, uh, in our in context, we talked about it. Hey, how old does somebody need to be in order to be sort of qualified to be a member at Redemption? So we said 16 and above. You know, and, and so that's where it starts. So if you're 16 or above, hey, man, and you want to be a member of Redemption, you can totally do that. But, but there are some things about membership. Some qualities that must be true. The first is this. Members identify. Members identify. First, they identify in Christ. Acts 20, 28 says, So guard yourselves and God's people. Feed and shepherd God's flock. His church purchased with his own blood over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as elders. In this sense, membership is sort of like an office, just like elders or deacons or offices. So are members. 
And the very first step about that is you actually know Jesus. You're actually a Christian. You follow Christ. If somebody says, I'm not a Christian, I don't follow Christ, but I want to be a member, my first thing would be, I don't know why. Not in a bad way. Like, I really appreciate you want to be involved, but I don't know why, because the church isn't so much an institution. The church is a body of people in Jesus, right? Jesus makes up the church. Jesus is the head of the church. We are the body of Jesus. First and foremost, if somebody wants to be a member, they need to be a Christian in Jesus, because that's what makes up the church. Now, there may be some people who go to this meeting that we call church that aren't Christians. That's awesome. Hang out with us. Keep asking questions. Keep watching. Keep trying to understand. But, but understand, the church is by nature an institution of those in Jesus. So membership identity first is in Christ. The second thing that is true, though, is that membership identity is with a particular local church. You read through the New Testament and letters are written to the church of Corinth, to the church of Philippi, to the church of Ephesus, to the churches of Galatia. In other words, there was a sense of identification that says, that's my local church. I'm involved there, right? And so that's what we said. Membership, as we understand it today, isn't necessarily prescribed in the Bible, but there is this blessing and benefit to identifying with the church where you say, that's my place. Those are my peeps. I hang with them. Those are, that's, that's my group. And we're all in Jesus together with a common mission and common goal and common ambition for the gospel. That's our heart. And so members identify. So if you're sitting there this morning and go, okay, I'm in the membership class halfway through. What does it mean to be a member? First thing is identification in Christ with a local church such as Redemption Church. That would be the first step in being a member. You identify. The second step, according to the New Testament that we look at, is that members integrate. They integrate. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Right? This is that idea of integration where you go, you know what? I know that the church isn't just about me. It's not just about me coming and me being satisfied and me being filled up and me learning something and then me leaving the building and me being done. See, some do that and I'm not chastising that, but what I'm saying is membership in a church says, no, 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 I'm going to plug into this thing. It's me and Jesus coming to receive and to give. In fact, I, I, I love this little phrase here, the common good. It, the, the original language there is where we get the word symphony from, right? So like Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians. He says, man, when you guys come together in Christ as a body, there's a sense of integration where you're like a symphony. So one comes with a horn and one comes with a flute and one comes with a cello and one comes with a violin and one comes with the drums. And it's not like you just play your own instruments unrelated. You played them together for the common good. And it's far more powerful that way. To just hear a violin is beautiful, but to hear it in a symphony is unbelievably overwhelming. And and see, that's what the local church is to be, a symphony. Where we're coming and saying, how do I take my gift, my talent, my instrument in essence, and bring it to the table for all? What does that look like and how do I contribute? That is integration. 
So if somebody says, I want to be a member of Redemption Church, what does it take? We say, well, first of all, you have to identify in Christ. Second, you identify with us as a local church. Third, you're going to choose to integrate. Not just spectate, but really integrate. Plug in. That integration goes even deeper. Third thing, members invest. They invest. Ephesians chapter 4 says, There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and in all and living through all. However, he has given each of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. goes on to say, now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and the teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up his church, the body of Christ. Again, what did I say? Who's the playmakers? Members. Why? Look at, look at that passage there. It says he gave certain gifts which are found in elders and found in deacons and found in pastors and teachers and that kind of thing. But they coach, they care, they invest into the members so the members can do what? Do the work. I mean, that's what it says right there, right? To do his work and build up the church. Who does the work and builds up the church? The members. The people. The playmakers, you put the points on the board. That's what I love about that. Now, in some ways, pastors and elders, we're player coaches. I mean, we're, we're part of that too. We're also members as well as deacons or elders. Uh, we contribute in the same way. We do the same stuff. We're all called to be missional theologians. We're all called to invest our time and our talents and our treasures into the mission of the church. But it's the membership that invests. And if you say, hey, man, I want to be a member. You say, awesome. We want you to be a member. You identify, you integrate, you invest. These are just the simple New Testament ideas about owning a local church. It's what we do. And then there's a fourth. Members invite. Members invite. First of all, they invite accountability from elders and deacons to fulfill the church's DNA. Now, by DNA, we mean the flavor of any given local church. So, uh, for Redemption Church, our DNA is we're evangelical, which means we believe in Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, and scripture alone. We're conservative on our view of the Bible and doctrine. We're a little bit more creative and culturally uh, agile when it comes to our environment that we live in. We're missional, which means we want to reach people where they're at, right? That's our DNA. But what members do is they say, well, hey, man, there's some accountability. First of all, you hold us accountable. You kind of look at the elders and deacons and say, hey, are we fulfilling the DNA? Are we doing the stuff? Are we reaching people? Are we glorifying God? Are we making sure that what we say we are as a church is happening? Right? That's good. Are we getting it done? But then there's also this other sense of accountability where you say, well, how can I be a part of making sure the mission's happening? I want to make myself accountable to as well as hold others accountable in, in a gracious, loving, kind way. Again, this isn't like, hey, it ain't going on. That, that, won't, that won't go well for anybody. It's not even, that's on my heart. But we lovingly encourage and coach and counsel and uphold each other in this process. So members invite at that level. They also invite availability to the church's DNA, right? So, again, how can I grab on? How can I make things happen? How can I be the playmaker? And the members also invite attenders, right? And if you were here last week, we had this little model, this little chart that we showed how we were structured. And we talked about attenders. And there's basically three types of attenders within a church context. 
Some attenders are attending because they're church shopping. They're just trying to see, is this going to be the place for us, right? So you're trying to invite people that maybe need to connect with the church. Maybe they don't have a church yet. You invite them to attend and see if this is the place for them. There are other attenders that you're inviting because they need to come to know Christ. Right? They don't even know Jesus. And, and what you know is that, you know what, church is a place where they're going to hear about him. So I've got this unsafe friend and I want to bring them to church. So I invite them to be an attender. So some attenders are shoppers and some attenders are seekers. But then other attenders are those that are in the church, have been maybe with redemption for weeks or months or whatever. And, and you as a member go, hey, how do, I, how do I get them to plug in and to take ownership and to go from an attender to a member? How do I make that contribution in their life to try to encourage them to see that happen, right? That's what members can do. So these are sort of the, the essence and spirit, right? They identify, they integrate, they invest, they invite. When we look at the New Testament, we go, that, that's, that's what we see for the church. It's just what we see. Now, how does that all play for redemption? Right? This gets into some of our more particular stuff here. So hopefully you'll bear with it. This is the last week we're going to have these kinds of particulars, and then we can start to breathe again a little differently. But when we look at this, we're calling it Redemption's Elder Deacon Member DNA. Right? So how does this look particular for us, for you as a potential member and deacon and elder, all of that? How does this shake down? Well, for members, here's how it starts. First off, in a normal context, not like right now, but normally, uh, if somebody comes week one and they say, hey, I want to be a member, what do I need to do? We're going to say, hang out for three months and just get to know us because in three months time, we'll probably do something that either makes you mad or you'll still like us. We don't know. So um, give us three months and you'll get our flavor. Good or bad, you're going to get us. And so that's the first thing. Also with that, we'll say, take our membership class. So you understand our DNA and why we do what we do and how we do it, that kind of thing. So hang out, take a class, get to know us. Now, if there's still a green light, we'll say, great, here's the first thing. Do you confess Jesus as Lord, Savior, and the only way to God? Do you believe that? That's going to be a standard for membership because that's, that's the essence of our Christian church. And so you go, okay, yes, I do. I confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. I believe he's the only way. We'll say, great. After that, there's just a few things we need you to agree to. Agree to the doctrine and direction of redemption. Now, by agree with, we don't mean you have to be like, woohoo, cheerleader for it. You don't have to love everything about what redemption does. I'm a leader and pastor in this context, and it doesn't do everything I want in a church. You'd be like, but dude, don't you write some of the stuff? You also give up some of your own ideas, too, for unity right? So it's not like I bind to every single thing that we're about as a church, but I go for the greater good. There's some things that I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. I'm not going to make an issue. It's not a big thing. I don't have to, right? There's diversity even within our pastoral team. Uh, there's doctrinal differences that are lesser issues. They're not worthy of dividing over or dying for. Now, some zealous 20 year olds think they are. They're not, Right? They're, they're not. So we kind of realize that, but we're saying you have to generally agree to the doctrine and direction of Redemption Church. Next, you have to agree to consistently attend on Sundays. That's just the thing where Sunday kind of steers the vibe and the essence of a church. And if you go, man, we come half the time or a quarter of the time, man, we're glad when you're here, but it may not make sense for you to be a member because membership is so much more than just attending and attending part of the time. And so, again, we'd say, do you agree to consistently attend on Sundays? That doesn't mean like 52 weeks you must be here and we're going to put little gold stars by your name. Um, though that would be cool. Um, 
not so much that we want to track it, but just to have gold stars again as adults would be sweet. All right, so um, not doing that, though. But, you know, you're, you're consistently attending, right, in some kind of scope. Agree to regularly give financially to advance the kingdom. Now, I'm going to say this, and some people are going to be irritated at me, and some people are going to say thank you, and I don't, I don't know which group even. Um, I'm not saying you have to give it here. Right now, the elders are going. What's he saying? Um, what, I, what I'm saying is, you advance the kingdom. As a church, we care about the kingdom advancement. Now, now I'll, I'll tell you personally. Hey, I would love for you to give it here. I mean, boy, we have a lot of dreams, a lot of things. We're going to roll those out at the first of the year. There's a lot of great things that God is putting on our heart to do, and it takes finances to do it. We pray, we hope that you'll give it here, but we're not saying to be a good, godly Christian member. It must come here. But what we are saying is you take your your reserves and you go, I give it to kingdom purpose. I want the kingdom to win, the gospel to win, Jesus to win. Whatever Jesus leads you to do with his money given to you is what we want you to do. That's a good member. That's a good member. So, if you want to give it to this particular mission, awesome. We pray you do. Right? We pray that you bring that support. But at the same time, we go, man, there may be things that Jesus says, I want you to do this, and you need to do what he tells you to do. That is what I'm going to say. But it's just consistently doing that, all right? To give regularly, financially, to advance the kingdom. Also, you agree to be involved personally in a defined ministry of redemption. We would call this a two-eventer. So in other words, you come to Sunday, and you're in a regroup. You want to be a member, you come to Sunday, and you're in a regroup somewhere. Right? And, and that's just because, again, that's a way that you can invest your knowledge, abilities, gifts, talents, whatever it is, and in, in, in not just a Sunday morning contact. So we've got like 20 some odd options. And so hopefully you find something that fits for you. And then last, you agree to live as a missional theologian. And this is because this is the fabric of what we are as a church. It's not the holy huddle where it's just us four, shut the door, have a good time, go out, and that's it. But we want everybody to be a missional theologian, to be impacting their area of influence as, as God has, has put them there. So you go, I, that's what I want to do. Say, sweet. If these things are important to you, that's what we're asking for of members. Now, in that, some members are are, going to even go a little bit deeper. They're going to say, man, I feel drawn not just to membership. I feel drawn to being a deacon. Or I feel drawn to being an elder. And we're going to say, awesome. We love the idea that people may be drawn. So, So what do you do if you want to be an elder or a deacon at Redemption Church? First is this. You act on that sense of leading. In other words, it may not be the leadership that's walking around going, hey, you should be an elder. Hey, you should be a deacon. Hey, you should do this. We're probably not going to do that because, again, you go back to what we learned last week. Elders in particular, their thing is to be what? Aspiring to and desiring. Right? So we're not going to be like, please, please, please come be a leader with us. We're not. You'll have to take the initiative. Now, you may go, well, that sounds arrogant. And we don't think it sounds arrogant if you go, man, I really sense God is leading me to this because there's going to be a process after that that will pretty much wash out the arrogant. Honestly, the arrogant will bounce in a month because it's not feeding their ego. But those who say, man, I, I, I just feel called to serve, led to serve. I aspire and desire to do this. Uh, great, that's going to be the first step. The second step is this. You complete the praxis track and all the requirements. Now, uh, Praxis will start in mid-January, here in a month and a half, whatever it is. Uh, so there's going to be an opportunity. 
right? And, and here's what you need to know about Praxis. Praxis is 18 modules. Actually, it's going to be a little bit bigger probably. It's going to be more like 22 this time. 22 modules, two hours apiece. So you have to go to all of those modules. On top of that, you will have to read 10 books over the course of that time. On top of that, you will do a self-evaluation, looking at the qualities of an elder in the New Testament or the qualities of a deacon, and you will go through a self-evaluation. On top of that, you'll go through two interviews with the leadership of the church. And in those interviews, we're going to ask, how is your personal life? How is your public life? How is your job life? We might call your boss to find out what kind of Christian you are at work. Right? Because you have to be of good reputation, it says. We're going to talk to your spouse. How are they at home? Are they consistent? You go, I'm not liking this. Well, we want to make sure. I hope you do like it because, again, it's, it's taking it seriously. So they'll, they'll go through all of that, and then they'll be on top of that little papers they have to write, and they'll take an oral quiz, and a lot of things will happen in that time. Now, there's a higher standard for elders than there is deacons, but both elders and deacons will, will go through this process known as praxis. Then at the end of that, the leadership has to give a, a full thumbs up to, to those individuals. Yep, man, we feel really good about that whole process. After that, then the leadership comes to the membership. And for four weeks, you can weigh in. You go, oh, I know something, or that's great. Or you, you get to have a voice to affirm in that sense just by interacting with the leadership to go, yep, we, we know about that person, and they're great, and we feel good, or boy, there's this thing, and I'm concerned, and I just want clarity. And so that will go into place as well. That's the corporate feedback of a potential elder or deacon. And then if all of that's good, and we go, man, this person we believe is meant to be an elder, well, then the membership will affirm. And to be an elder at Redemption Church, you must have an affirmation of 90% of the members. 90%, which means a lot of this is relational. A lot of this is interactive. It's a lot of extra work. But because we take it serious. And we take your insights and your opinions and your understanding and making sure you know potential leaders, elders in the church well, we, we, go, we want to hold to a 90% affirmation. But then here's where this gets a little bit interesting. After that, elders are appointed by the membership of the church under the eldership of the church for as long as they feel led and are qualified. Now, some go, wait, don't you think they should serve terms? Or, or don't you think it should be different? Well, what, what we've kind of looked at is we believe that elders are gifts given by Jesus, not just simply offices filled. It's not just a slot with a timeline. And we even went a step deeper with it. We said, we don't see in the New Testament where they served certain amounts of time. They were just elders in the church. So we wanted to really go with the New Testament pattern. But beyond that, we also know that teams get healthy when they're together a long time. Especially if you're putting people within a team that had to really work a lot to actually be a part of that team. In other words, if this was like just a, you take two classes and you get voted in, that's dangerous. But for something where somebody has to invest an entire year of their life to be a volunteer, that's different. And so we said, man, that's just healthy. We just want to go that route. And so with that, we thought, boy, the healthiest thing, the most biblical thing, the most centered in the New Testament was to go, their gifts given by Jesus and let them do that. But then every year, the leadership will get together and go, um, man, am I really doing it? Because on top of this, what, what an elder at Redemption Church uh, is kind of giving themselves to is they're here all Sunday morning 
Uh, they are involved in a ministry. Really, we're working to a place where they run a ministry of the church. Uh, they have to give themselves to all of the meetings and any other things that come up. Just the hours per week is higher for an elder than anybody else in the church. And so there's a lot that gets into this that they will hold themselves to. And so every year they'll be like, it's too much. I want to take a break or whatever. Great. Great. Are they doing it? That, that's the question. And so again, high bar for the elders. As for deacons, they'll go through a similar process, a little bit less intense on some things. But then deacons will be appointed by elders for as long as they feel led and are qualified. Mainly because deacons are, are working alongside the elders pretty dramatically as far as doing ministry. And so kind of deacons are deployed where needed, right? Because there's all kinds of servant needs in the church. And so that's the elders and deacons. Right now at Redemption Church, we have some elders. Uh, we don't have any deacons currently, but that's what we're going to be putting together over the next six months. So elders, deacons, that's what they do. And then this all kind of, you know, like I said, rolls in with the membership in that affirmational spirit. So I have to go a little deeper. I'm sorry. I know this is detailed. We're going to get out of the way. How does this relate to the articles and bylaws of Redemption Church? I just said bylaws, and I think I threw up in my mouth. All right, so um, I am not. I do not like bylaws. I'm not a fan of bylaws. I'm just confessing that. I'm not even saying my attitudes are totally great. But um, bylaws are one of those things that are required by the state and by the government, and we create these bylaws to comply with that and be good citizens as a church and that kind of thing. But our focus in bylaws was saying, how small can we make them? Our bylaws are 16 pages. 16 pages, and about a third of which is just our doctrinal statement. We wanted to keep it very, very small, but here's what we wrote in our bylaws so you understand the heart and spirit behind it. It says, the ecclesiastical structure of Redemption Church was founded through and is headed by Jesus Christ, who is our senior pastor. The chief governing document of Redemption Church is the Bible. The secondary and subordinate document of Redemption Church uh, are the Articles of Incorporation uh, and the Bylaws. Uh, the Articles of Incorporation and Bylaws are to be interpreted in light of the Bible as God's perfect and complete revelation. In other words, we point it back to Jesus in the Bible as much as we can. We're not all stoked about bylaws, excited about them, whatever else, but we have them. And so with that, how does this all come together? Again, I'm going to rush Elders' relationship to the bylaws, they ensure doctrinal and directional DNA of Redemption Church. They maintain the standards of the Praxis Leadership Discovery Track. They conduct membership classes and annual celebrations. They set and maintain the budget, and they schedule an independent audit, which is required every single year, an independent audit that is then given to the members. Uh, and they oversee staff and deacons. That's what the elders will do in their relationship to the bylaws. The deacons' relationship to the bylaws, they help the elders facilitate the doctrinal and directional DNA of Redemption Church. They meet with the elders regularly to ensure overall ministry effectiveness. They free up the elders by serving whatever ministry needs arise. And so they're kind of working in the team that way. Then you get to the members and their relationship. The members affirm by 90% the elders. They affirm bylaw changes by 80%. That's what the membership does. Uh, bylaws are reviewed annually, and so that's something that's important to us. They receive the findings of the annual independent audit. And again, that audit must be completed within two months of the budget close or the new budget freezes. That's fun. Um, we wanted high accountability financially, like really high accountability financially. And so we said, that's just the way it's going to work. That's what's going to happen. 
And so every year when we have our annual celebration, uh, the members will receive a card. And, and on that card, you'll just affirm a couple of things. I've consistently attended on Sundays. I've given regularly financial to kingdom advancement. I've been involved personally in the defined ministry of Redemption Church. I've sought to live as a missional theologian. You'll sign your name. And then whatever elders or bylaw changes or whatever's under there, you'll, you'll affirm those kinds of things. Right? So what we've done, in essence, is we've just raised the bar on everything. When it comes to elders and deacons and members who go, man, the bar should be high. I mean, we're a part of Jesus' church. But, but we're not doing it for control. We're not doing it for checks and balance. We're doing it to have a, a focused, defined, driven sense of team. See, that's the heart. That's the spirit. And so if we showed a little model of this, bring up that first slide. It, it's like this. I know that looks crazy. But the idea is everybody's investing in everybody else. Is Jesus investing in everybody? And we do it all for him. So it was less about this or that. or you know, It's just a dynamic. Where everybody's investing in everybody. Everybody knows the role, their job, their biblical calling in that. And they do that. This happens in a broader context. Bring up the next slide, which is in the church. And so you have the elders and deacons and members all connected to Jesus. Then fanning out to different attenders that are either seekers or shifting into membership or shopping for a church, whatever it is, that's that bigger dynamic. And then this dynamic gets even bigger, which is to the world. And then we go as missionaries. See, that's the heart, that's the structure, that's the design of Redemption Church. And we hold this, I pray, and I believe, very humbly and very thankfully, and very much saying, it's really about going. In fact, I'd say the heart behind this for all of us is to be like, go team, right? That's what we're doing. Go team. We're a team. We're a team that goes because it's all about Jesus. All right, that was a lot. Glad I'm done. All right, let's pray. Jesus, this was the marathon, and I I thank you for this marathon. I know it. this is kind of the foundation in which other things will develop and deploy over the course of time. And I thank you that we're able to take an opportunity like today to go, wow, this is, this is sort of all of it. But I pray that you will use this for your glory. And I pray that we will uh, seek you in it with great humility and great earnestness to really, if anything, just make sure that we are bonding ourselves to you as our senior pastor, that as elders and deacons and, and members, that we will be locking arms as coaches and defenders and the offense to kind of, again, see plays made, see scores for you, uh, see you win. And so I pray that you will use us in this way. I pray you will teach us in this way. I pray that we will honor you in all that we do. We love you and we thank you and we praise you, Jesus, in your awesome and good name. Amen.